0: This is an exclusive for subscribers of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and for fans of our latest investigative podcast, The Last Voyage of the Pong Su. Nicholas Martin had a very important role in the Pong Su story, but it's one he's never talked about publicly until now. Nicholas was a Navy clearance diver who boarded the Pong Su with the SAS troops. After checking the ship for any hidden explosive devices, Nicholas took command of the bridge, and working with one of the captured North Koreans, he steered the Pongsu back to Sydney Harbour. In this interview, you'll also hear what it's like to skipper a Navy patrol boat in Australia's northern waters at the age of 20, and what it takes to be a clearance diver. I started by asking Nicholas about how he got into the military.
1: I came in with the idea of being a helicopter pilot, joined the military and found out about clearance diving. It sounded way more exciting. So... To get, go on that path, you, you can't jump straight into it, especially as an officer. You've got to actually earn your stripes and become a seaman officer, which is essentially gives you the ability to navigate a ship. And so on, at the start of that path, I, my first on was a patrol boat in Darwin. So I would have been probably 20 years old at the time. You essentially get thrown right in the middle of it. You go from a kid out of high school, you do your officer training, next thing you know you're on a patrol boat, you're boarding a vessel full of these in men from Indonesia, most likely the island of Roti, indigenous fishermen. You may have to arrest them and tow them back to Australia, or tow them outside Australia's economic exclusion zone. So that was my sort of that was my first taste of that sort of life, um, and it was quite good. It was quite a good thing because if I'd gone to a major warship like a frigate destroyer, I most likely would have just spent most of my time on the bridge of that ship, four hours on, eight hours off, and running that cycle. So the patrol boating experience was quite good. And that went on for about 18 months, not only in Northern Australia, but right through the South Pacific and Asia.
0: So you're getting more, a more, I guess, all encompassing experience of how a ship works and
1: different situations thrown at you. Absolutely. And you've got to, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing you learn though is about people. So I'm a 20 year old. I can't even lead myself, let alone lead men. And here I am put in this position where I'm, I'm supposed to be the officer in charge of a group of sailors. And they could be, some of them had more experience in the Navy than I had in life. So you learn a lot about what you can and cannot do. You learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about leadership and management. And then you go onto, onto a Indonesian fishing vessel, massive language barrier. And then so you've got to try and somehow build some rapport with these people to get, information to determine whether they're guilty or not and there's a language barrier there's a cultural barrier there's a whole range of things so you, you learn a lot about life in a very short period of time. Did
0: you have a bit of empathy for some of those guys you go in there I imagine they're relatively
1: poor? You, you do and I, I, when you get thrust into that environment you, your first thoughts are You know, you're operating in the you know the maritime law environment where you're thinking, well, they shouldn't be in Australia's economic exclusion zone. They're taking our products, and then you sort of start to dig into their world and understand some of the challenges they have. And then you, once you, the more you do it, the more you understand it's it's part of something bigger. So a lot of the time, these vessels are actually funded by outside entities who are funding the development. Well, the building of the boats, the, the manning of them and sending them down to Australia to capture the resources. So they're, they're no different to drug runners. It's almost like there's two or three steps behind them that are using these people that are completely expendable to go and capture resources for their benefit, whether it's shark fin, trepain, those types of things. So troker shells uh, or moving people. And these the, the people that are doing that are, are paying the price, but they haven't really got a choice. They either sit impoverished in a village or they take this up with the... And look, the reality is when they get arrested, they, they're they incarcerated in Australia and they're generally getting paid and they get a nice international flight back home. So for them, it's not really that bad. In in the context of that. Of right? their world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, Navy clearance diving, I watched a few years ago, there was a reality TV show uh, based on the selection course for Australian... Navy clearance divers, yep. and it was really interesting, and I had no idea. Um, I guess the SAS is always the, you know, the most high-profile. Everyone goes, oh, God, you're going to be a tough bastard to, mm. to get through that, but it looked very intense, the Navy diving, yeah, it's the a, Navy clearance diving course.
1: Yeah, it's a different... It's a different type of intensity. So clearance diving selection is different SASR selection in that there's a three-week very intense selection process. Uh, Clearance diving selection takes nine months for an officer and about six months for a sailor. And the challenge with that is maintaining the desire to keep going day after day while they're physically depleting you, sleep depriving you, constantly keeping you off balance. So that, that's, the, that's the challenge of moving through. And a lot of the time, the attrition rate is so high just because either people get injured or mentally they just can't deal with it anymore and they just say, I, I don't love this enough to want to keep doing this for this period of time. What's the most confronting
0: part of the course for me? Watching the show, I was thinking there was one bit, I think, where um, some guys were sent underwater with very minimal... Amounts of um, oxygen and in really dark environment, and having to complete some tasks kind of against the clock. Mm. Um, was there an element of that to your training?
1: Uh, they're always, I think. I think if you've got really good directing staff, so the people that are that are taking you through, and generally the interesting thing about clearance I mean, it's fairly similar to SASR. The people that are selecting the officers are the senior sailors. So they're selecting you based on who can they work with, who do they want to lead them. It's not about whether I'm the fittest guy, smartest guy, best tactical operator. No, It's none of that. It's really, is this the sort of person I want to be led by and what sort of behaviors are they displaying in adversity so that's why they're always putting you in these really difficult situations where you've got to go deep inside yourself and ask yourself the question can I get through this or not a lot of the time you really are doing that you're saying I don't think I can do it you're having that constant battle in your mind one side saying come on come on you can do it and the other side saying you can't do this why are you trying to do this this is impossible and then once you get that dialogue clear in your head you start to think you know what I can go a lot harder than I thought I could and then so that's what they're trying to show you that where you think the line is, you can always take one step past it. Very similar process to SASR. They're just, they're just trying to push you to the line to see whether you step back or you step across it. And then once that line, that line then keeps shifting further and further and further.
0: It must be pretty liberating and I guess a little bit intoxicating once you realise that you can reach that line in front of you and you get to open the door to what's yeah. what's over it
1: yeah yeah I okay, could definitely and it, but the, I think the hard thing is and a lot of ex-military people face is in that environment it makes sense and you you feel that real sense of satisfaction and achievement and that way of working is particular to that environment and then you come into you leave the military you leave that that sense of camaraderie and common way of working and what's possible and pushing yourselves and then you get into a corporate world where it's very isolating very solo and there's not so much a respect for that so that yeah, it's it's very much horses for courses. You do you do enjoy it, but at the same time it can make it hard for you to transition to other areas of life.
0: So we get to two thousand and three. What were you doing at the point of being brought into this Pong Su job?
1: Where were you? Well, I distinctly remember it. I was I was on a train which had just left Milton Milsons Point train station, heading south over the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and it was a and I'm, you're going to challenge me on all the detail here because it's a long time ago, so I'll do my best. Uh, it was a it was a Thursday afternoon, I think, around three o'clock. I got a phone call onto my duty mobile phone. So the way that I was I was second in command of Clarence Diving Team One, which is based in Sydney, at Waverton. The team is around about seventy five people. It's got a whole lot of different roles. I won't go into the details, but generally every day there's always a group of people. That are on standby, and I was duty officer on that particular day. So I got a phone call from Maritime Headquarters, the 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 operational command inside Maritime Headquarters, asking what the status of myself and my team was, and then talking about that I needed to make my way immediately to Garden Island. So essentially, I just kept catching the train in the same direction, got off at the next stop, and made my way over to Maritime Headquarters, and that's when they started building us into what was happening with the Pongsu. Initially. Initially, our brief was to get on board, help with the clearance of any IEDs, improvised explosive devices. It's, it's very similar to what I was... I mean, you rewind right back to when I was on a patrol boat. It was the same concept. There's a vessel, you board that vessel, you detain it, you make sure everyone's safe, and then you sail that vessel back to a harbour if you need to and you take control of it. So a very, very similar concept. This is the thursday night before an easter long weekend so it's not the best timing and uh so i was really i was prepared for a lot of pushback but to the person and there were seven of them to the person they all were were ready to go and it's interesting as people talk about you know what's the difference between managing men in the military and men and women in the corporate space or men and women in the military men and women in the corporate space and I always use the Friday morning before we boarded at HMS, HMAS Stuart as an example. I said to them I needed them in at the team at 0, 0600 or 6am. 6 and uh, I thought the right thing for me to do, considering I'd ask them to come in on a weekend, knowing I didn't know how long this was going to go on for, by the way. Um, I'll get in there at 5am, lights on, I'll be dressed, ready to go, have the brief ready, as soon as they walk in, they're all orientated, know what they needed to do, and we're good to go. So I got in there at five a.m., and they were all in there, lights on. Half of them addressed, half of them weren't, but they were already getting the gear ready without really knowing what the op was. I just said it was a boarding operation, and that was about all I gave them. So, um, and that—that was—that's the difference in the in the military. Sometimes it's hard. It's almost like a thoroughbred. You have got to rein it back. It just wants to go all the time. And if you run it back too much, it gets a bit annoyed with you. So it's trying to figure out how do you let it have its head and keep moving forward, but at the same time, don't let it run away from you. Whereas in the corporate space, I always find you're trying to energize and get direction around people. Anyway, so that was Friday morning. Um, we we're all together, briefed, got the equipment ready. Not not difficult for us because a lot of a lot of what we do in the teams is packaged up by task. So you can just pull stuff out, get it, get, get it ready to go. And then we um, made our way over to HMAS Stewart. And, and that's when the fun really started. We Stewart was birthed at Garden Island. And it was probably, I'm, I'm thinking maybe 7, 7.30 in the morning. And we arrived. And it's really us and a radio operator. We're all the operators plus a radio operator. We're moving our own gear, driving our own vehicles. The SAS turn up. They've got logisticians and radio operators and armourers. Oh, absolutely, right. Like, we turn up in one truck, they turn up in six. You know, it's that, that sort of that sort of scenario. Uh, there was another group on there called Incident Response Regiment, and they were, they were once again, another group that was sort of building up its capability. I mean,
0: and did the intelligence picture you had say that there was a risk of IEDs no, on, not, a, on what, a ship like no, that? No, that, we,
1: we weren't even anywhere near that yet. Yeah. I mean, we... If you think about the cycle that we went through, so let's say we embarked on the ship on the, on the Friday, we set sail, we started the planning process probably Friday afternoon, we did some dry runs Saturday and then didn't actually do the assault until Sunday. So it's a, you've got a lot of time to sort of think through what you need to do. The hard thing is you know when you're obviously standing up a group of people bringing them into an operation, without really much information, that, that, that was the challenging how, part.
0: How rough was it? Did you, do you recall how rough the seas were? A few people have mentioned that it was pretty hairy getting out off the east coast.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not the roughest I've ever been out there, but it's definitely past the point of being comfortable. I mean, when you... So HMAS Stewart's quarter deck, which is the, the back part of the ship, for want of a better term, where a lot of the capstans and lines are used for berthing, I mean, that was going underwater you know, waves are breaking over that and flooding it completely. Does that mean much to people? Probably not. I mean, I think it it was particularly difficult to put to sea in that that sort of weather, especially for a lot of people who'd probably embarked on a ship for the first time in a long time. And so you're trying to... You're trying to think through what's a quite a complex and stressful situation while the deck's moving underneath you 20 degrees at a time. And so, it's, yeah, there was a lot of people that paid the price. And I'm the first to say oh, I did not feel good at all for a period of time. Even after all my years in the military and especially at sea, I, I did not feel good. And there was a lot of other people that didn't feel good during that time.
0: So what's the planning process like then over that sort of you got you know 72 hours or whatever to, yep. to work through? um what what did you guys do and what did you what sort of picture did you build
1: so so the SASR led the the planning process because they they were the the key element that was going to insert initially and they had the resources to do it so they were their intel officer was building the intelligence picture so generally what you'd find is everyone would get on board get settled get stored be put to sea And then the captain from the ship would come down and meet with us and say, what's the current situation? Where are we at? And I think at that time um, the Pong Su was heading out towards New Zealand. it was the Victorian um, maritime um, police boat was in pursuit of it. and then – so once we got that picture, I think we had – there was a, an RAAF Orion circling above it, keeping um, tabs on it as well. So there was a fairly good picture of where it was at, what it was doing. And then what they were trying to feed back to us was what was the state of the ship. So what, what, what were they seeing on it that may have been unusual that we needed to know about? Um, the main thing that kept coming back was there wasn't much – on the upper deck to say it was unusual in any way, but how it was carrying not much ballast and no cargo, which in that weather is is really, really difficult to handle a ship like that in that weather. So, so light. So light. So it's just moving around a lot, yeah. um, capturing a lot of the wind, a lot of the swirl, and it'd be very, very uncomfortable on board. It'd be moving around and you gotta remember the superstructure on that ship is up quite high. So you know, it's, it's going to be moving through quite a big arc constantly. Um, the other thing too is it puts a lot of stress on the engines because the propeller would have been, you know, exiting the water as it's ploughing through swell. We started to build a, a, a broader intelligence picture and we started to get some um, nautical architecture diagrams of that type of ship so we could get a bit of an understanding of what its layout was so you're not moving into a, an environment blind. Um, but the biggest single risk that kept coming back was Um, either someone on the upper decks that would try and resist us boarding, whether that's through the use of a a rifle or some sort of rocket-propelled grenade. And then the other risk was that they would actually plant explosives in that vessel to not allow that vessel to be taken and scuttle the vessel while we were on board or prior to us embarking on board. So that would be like a suicide mission. Yeah. Yeah, and once and once again, you you, you, t- you got to take your intel and go, is this applicable to this situation or not? But you also got to plan against it. So uh, one of the things was, you know, we need to make sure that our plan incorporated both those scenarios and what we were doing in the event of both those scenarios. So
0: when you get that picture, um, yeah, I guess you you run a risk assessment of the probabilities and and then come up with something to deal with yep. it.
1: Yep. yep. And and look, and the, and the reality is. Uh, is it going to stop your boarding? Most likely not. Is it going to take you off what you need to do? Most likely not. It's just a consideration and you've just got to, I mean, and one of the things that the training teaches you is that, that if you think about the first principle of warfare, which is selection and maintenance of the aim, the aim was for us to board that vessel and detain that vessel. That's That was our mission. So anything out out and around that, while it's important to consider and plan for, it, it, it'll just end up being a distraction if you focus on it too heavily.
0: Yeah. So then we get to the Sunday morning. You've gone through your dry runs or the practice runs. Yep. On the Saturday, where where were you? Were you one of the guys in the Seahawk, or did you come on uh, come to the Pong Su via the
1: fast no, boat? No, so we came in in the Seahawk um, in the second wave. So there was two waves. The yeah. So and we fast roped onto that Seahawk. I think there was about fifteen of us in the back. So it's not it's not the most comfortable helicopter ride like it's not like you're in Hawaii with your partner flying around Kauai and looking at the beautiful mountains I was actually I remember I had my back to the the pilot's seat um, and I had another person I was crouched down on my haunches and I had another person jammed right in between my legs with their back to my chest and we were stacked in that tight and I think the only room was really around the the doorway where there was a there was a sniper in the doorway, and then also the um, air crew who was there ready to put the rope out to assist us fast roping. So you're you probably you're in the back, you're launching off the warship, you're flying out and around over the horizon, and coming back in again. And so you're pretty much inside a an aircraft without any ability to see what's going on outside. You're just there for the ride until people start exiting out the door and sliding down the rope.
0: And in those um, fairly nasty weather conditions, it would have been a fair um, fair feat by the pilot to actually manoeuvre to get you guys above the ship and safely out.
1: Yeah. So I think, I mean, from memory, because of those, the gantry cranes that were on that vessel and the hover height was I believe, and once again, I don't know the technicalities, but he was almost at maximum height for a a safe fast rope operation. And what I mean by that is for people who are listening, you may have covered it previously, but fast roping really relies on the friction from your hands and boots to slow you down. You're not fastened to the line. It's not like abseiling where you wear a harness and you're connected and the friction's taken through some mechanism. The friction is really in your hands and your boots as you're sliding down. So... The longer you're on that line, the more your hands will heat up and the less chance you've got to dissipate heat. So it, it can become quite uncomfortable. And especially if you're carrying, so I was carrying quite a lot of weight because I had some devices that were used to disrupt IEDs on my back. Um, so the more weight you're carrying and the higher you are, it's not the most comfortable slide down. So when you when you get on the deck, what do you remember? Like what was the situation like when
0: you set foot on the ship?
1: It all happens very, very quickly. I mean, as soon as you're on the deck, you've got to move out from underneath the aircraft because there's probably a person coming down right above you. There's a lot of rotor wash. There's a lot of noise going on. The deck was definitely pitching around quite a bit. Um, While the vessel was reasonably well secure because the first wave of um, SSR guys had gone on board, you're still not 100% comfortable, right? You, You know that the ship had not been searched. There's still a lot of people on there. There could be a whole range of scenarios occur. So my first process was just to follow the plan, which was I needed to get up onto the bridge um, as, as quick as I could. And then I rendezvoused with um, Tim at the time. And then we just talked through what he wanted me to have a look at. So my, my first priority was just to make sure that the ship was clear of IEDs. That was the main priority. And how long does that process take? Uh, in, in this particular situation, we had to make a call because... Could you imagine searching a ship for every single compartment, every single aspect within that compartment? Days. Exactly. Months probably. So we just had to make a call what we thought was a threat and deal with that. And there there was some, I think with the North Koreans, they were... I think they were amateur um, electricians. They were making different devices. So they, they, like on the surface, when you looked at it, it looked like it was something suspicious, but the reality was it might have just been a basic ham radio or an alarm clock or something like that that they'd actually fashioned together with spare parts. So I think they um, were having to
0: make do with not much. Correct. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Um, so once I'd gone through and had a look at where there were some concerns, I had a look through the superstructure. I sent a team down into the engine room to, to go through the engine room Um, generally you'll find too that with the people, if if people are in close proximity to something that's highly unlikely there's an IED there, they're not going to put themselves in harm's way. So most of the the manned locations we swept through pretty quickly. A lot of the other locations like the cargo holds and stuff, they were enormous and it was very obvious if something was in there. And in all likelihood, unless it's large enough and if it did detonate, it's not really going to do a hell of a lot of damage um, where it would jeopardise the ship and the people on board. So what? What about
0: your, you know, interaction or observations of the the crew on board? Um, did anything particular strike you about the thirty men that you saw?
1: Well, look, I'm not. I wasn't at the time. I wasn't experienced in in the merchant marine. So to me, thirty thirty people on a four thousand ton ship is quite small when you compare it to the military. Because they could have had, you know, if you think about it, a guided missile frigate, which is around the same. I mean, you could have up to 200 and 250 people on board a ship of that size. So it looks small in the context of the ship, but then you think about there's 30 people on this ship and no cargo. And then I, I got it. So in my interactions with them, I think as a people, uh, they were very compliant in that they knew that. There was no point in putting up any resistance. That the the show of force by the Australian Defence Force was so overwhelming that, you know, really they just had to back down and become compliant. There were, but generally most of the people on board you could tell were were mariners. There was one individual who was in the radio room that, once again, I don't know who he is from anyone else, but he you can just tell the bearing of a military person over the bearing of a. Of, a, of a, a mariner, you know, the, the, most of the people were mariners, and they and they didn't they didn't interact with us in a way that said they were willing to get into a fight. They were very much about I'm here to sail this vessel. You've detained the vessel. I'm compliant.
0: Yeah, the guy in the radio room is an interesting character that um, yeah. we saw to go into a little bit. He's a younger guy, and yep. um, yeah, yeah, he's a bit of fire to him. I yeah, think. That's yeah,
1: that's right. And and so most of those people were put down in the crew's rec room. Um, and then on the bridge, I uh, the, the master, Master Sung, he was on the bridge. He was, he was making it difficult for us to engage with him. Um, obviously, not really wanting to converse in English whatsoever. He knew that that was a that would buy him some time by doing that. Even though he was obliged to be able to converse with me in English, he he wasn't.
0: He would have been able to. I'm sure Absolutely. he would have understood.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. That, that resulted in us then having to f- find a translator to try and assist with that. Um, the other person was the was the chief mate, first officer, I mean, depending on what structure they had. And uh, he, he actually remained on the bridge with me for the duration of the passage back to Sydney. Um, would not take food, would not take water, would not take a rest, just remained on the bridge with me. Uh, it was very rudimentary communication because I, I was... Trying to steer the vessel with, I mean, there was obviously numbers, but most of the stuff was in Korean, so it was very difficult for me. So he assisted in. I would give him a helm order. I'd either give him a heading or a speed, and then ask him to do certain things. And he was he assisted me in that way. So he
0: was helpful in
1: that. Helpful. Respect. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Why yeah. do you think he wasn't taking food, water?
1: Uh, I think it it comes back to it comes back to the, if you go right back to the my patrol boat days if you're if you're a fisherman from a village and and your interactions with law enforcement and military in certain countries is probably not pleasant so you're going to look at people from those either military or law enforcement in a similar vein no matter where they come from so if you're on a vessel and military people come on and you know like we were in camouflage gear the SAS guys were all in black they're not showing their faces you're not, you know, you, 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 a lot of bad things are going to go through your head about yeah. what's going on here. And he might have thought that, are they going to drug me? Are they going to, whatever. I'm not going to, I'm just going to stay here. And and as long as I do this job for this person, I won't jeopardize my position on this ship. So, yeah. yeah. And, and that's all I can assume. I don't know whether so that's So just made himself not. useful. Yeah. Um,
0: and did you get a sense then, uh, any insights into this particular guy's um, character, or do you have a sense of humor? I oh, know it's hard with the language thing, or or whatever. Um, a sense of his personality, uh, spending that time with him in that role. He, uh,
1: he, he, look, he smiled, and but like I said, the the language barrier was huge. I, I had, I knew no Korean, and he knew no English. So, it was, I mean, I think, I think sometimes once he figured out that I knew what I was talking about in a maritime sense, he, I think, he understood that. I was from his world to a certain degree and uh, so we we communicated there was no animosity. there was no I mean generally you'll find like the, the the master was shooting us pretty you know dirty looks right so you could tell that he was not pleased with the situation that he was in whereas the, the the first officer he didn't he didn't behave like that at all and and I think it goes back to I was saying that most of these people are really trying to make the best out of a pretty bad position in life right they have it most likely had a family. Um, I mean, none of the staterooms on the ship had photos of wives or children in them. Interestingly, most of them only had Kim Jong Il and Kim Il Sung photos on the wall, um, which I found interesting. It was just it was a complete absence of anything outside material objects, anything personalised around their life back in in North Korea.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You wouldn't see that like on a, an Australian ship. No, or something not like at all. Be reminders of home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, was it the just the the task of driving that you know piloting or steering the ship um, back to Sydney? Obviously, instructions often in not in your language. Um, was it a, was it a hard vessel to to yeah, control? Yeah, so
1: just because it was carrying no was carrying no ballast and and just the, the weather conditions. So the the passage back to sydney just put us in a in the wrong position so generally when a ship's at sea in rough weather the most comfortable the most comfortable course is generally with the sea following you it's hard to steer the vessel because the 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 ship wants to surf the wave so you've got to constantly fight it but it's the most comfortable the second easiest one is actually going straight into the swell at slow speed. You roll over it. If it's steep, you smash into it, and that's quite uncomfortable. But the worst position is actually going across it. And we were, we were, we sort of had the weather um, in a position where it was it was causing the ship to almost corkscrew constantly, which puts a lot of stress on the ship. And and as it was, the engines cut out um, for a period of time on the passage back. Oh, I think it was to do with the weather conditions and the stress. It was because when the propeller leaves the water. The propeller's used to having something to push back against in the water and then as it pops out, it spins too fast, caught over speed and causes a lot of problems mechanically. Um, anyway, we had a, an engine failure. The, the vessel stopped and we had to do an injector change. And fortunately, one of my guys, Petty Officer, um, who was part of my team, started life in the Navy as a, a naval mechanic, and uh, in diesel mechanic. So he was actually involved in assisting and making sure that the repairs... That were conducted were were good enough to get us home, and they weren't being sabotaged in any way. It's pretty handy. Yeah,
0: yeah, and so you get back to Sydney Harbour <coughs> and yep. to Garden Island. Um, what do you do when you you finish that job? Like, what do you and your team? So do?
1: it was. It was actually an interesting little story. I'll, funnily enough, um, when I was telling you about clearance divers, used to go and do the Carter course and then go online with. Um, the SASR, two guys who, when they they went through the Carter course and that opportunity was taken away, I'm talking about 95, so quite some time ago.
0: Well, can you just explain for the listeners what that course was?
1: To, to join the SASR, you've got to go through the Carter course, which is a three-week selection course. Yeah. Um, even though we're in the military, we're clearance divers, We it was believed that... To have any credibility operating with SSR, we had to go through what they went through. So our, our guys would, if they were going to go and work as a water operator with SSR, they would go and do the Carter course and then go online with SSR. So two guys went through it in 95. I was actually in that mix at that time as well. Um, I got injured and didn't do it in the in the preparation for it. So I was going to wait for the following year. Anyway, that was the last year that we did it. Even though those guys got through, they weren't, that end of that, that relationship ended. So they decided that they really wanted to go and join the SAS. So they left the Navy and joined the SAS. Those two guys ended up as part of that troop that came back onto that vessel at that time. So interestingly, I was able to get one of them and put him on the on the stern and the other one on the bow, and they ran our boarding operate. sorry, our, our berthing operations when we came back to Sydney. So on the way back into Sydney, they were... We just had them dressed up in ragtag clothing, and they were down there with a whole couple of my guys, the clearance divers, and we handled the lines. Uh, on the way back in, the AFP, they they appeared off the heads with the, with the pilot. So uh, a rule, if you're on a warship entering Sydney, you don't have to embark a pilot. We do our own pilotage and berth the vessel. If you're on a merchant vessel, you're obliged to take on a, a Sydney Harbour pilot, which is what we did. So he came on board with the AFP, Um, and essentially we didn't hand that operation over until the ship was berthed alongside Garden Island. So, yeah, so really from the point of embarkation of the pilot, I handed over the the con of the ship, so he gave the helm orders, he brought it in, he berthed it, uh, and then that from an operational point of view, then I handed over my responsibility to the AFP and it became an AFP um, operation from that point on. We went downstairs, packed all our gear up, uh walked off went back to the team do what you normally do you sort everything out wash it clean it recharge it put it all back in its locker and then headed off for the rest of the weekend enjoy your easter yeah what's left of it that's right it was a sunday i think it was about by the time it was all washed up was probably about eight o'clock at nine on a sunday night so you go
0: and have a few beers with the guys or did you just go home
1: it was actually before we Left the island, we went back to a sh. Um, there was a warehouse on Garden Island, and we all went. There was there was pizzas and beers. I think it was the SAS guys and us went back to a warehouse, and we had Pete. That's what it was. And it was. And you would come back eventually. Yeah. So we, I think once we got off the vessel, off um, off the Pong Su, we got all our gear together. We went over to this warehouse, laid it all out, and made sure because the challenge is in those operations, a lot of gear gets mixed up. And there's a lot of stuff lying around, so you've got to go through and sort it out. And, and especially, there's some stuff in there that you just don't want to go missing. You get a lot of accountability. So I think that's right. We went back to the warehouse, sorted our gear out, made sure it was all correct. Had some pizzas and beers there, and then we went back to the team and dispersed from there.
0: And your your role still in this case continued a bit longer because you had to did you you had to give some evidence.
1: I did, but that was after I'd left the navy. So I left. Um, I'm trying to think, I think I left the Navy not long after that actually, maybe a few months after that. And I was, uh, I think at the time I was working, I think I was working maybe for Telstra at the time, you know, in a, in a corporate role. And uh, I'd been asked by the DPP to, to come and act on as a, as a witness on, on their side. And do you remember what the nature
0: of the evidence you were asked to talk about was? It just how the this, the,
1: the, the condition of the ship, or the that's that, and from memory, that's that was pretty much it. So what what was my understanding of the vessel when I bought it, and what did I do when I bought it? A lot of it was to do with what was the state of the vessel. Did what did I when I was on there? What did I do? So my conversing with the master or looking at their what's called a passage plan. That was something that was you knew straight away something wasn't right. Not only weren't they carrying any cargo and no ballast, but when I looked at their passage plan, so I looked at their passage plan is essentially before you leave a port, you have a plan to get to another port. And when I looked at it and I looked at the route that they took, none of it made any sense whatsoever. And so you knew straight away something wasn't quite right there. Um, but they wanted to know a bit more about that. And they were challenging me on, on the stability of the vessel and the ability to navigate it. Um, I remember one, one the barrister for the defence cross-examined me because I'd, I'd made a statement along the lines of, well, I knew she wasn't carrying much ballast and it was very rough because the propeller was coming out of the water. And he said to me, how could you possibly see the propeller when it's under the ship? And I said, well, when the ship rolls over and I look over the side... The ship's lying on its side, and I can see the propeller come out. And you know, I'm not I'm not leaning over with the ship; I'm sort of Mm. perpendicular to it. So, I remember there was they really pushed that line of questioning. I I don't know why they were pushing that line of questioning because I you got to remember I'm only in a little, a tiny little segment of that trial, and I don't know what led to it, and I don't know where it's going to afterwards. I think the most confronting thing really in that trial, not not so much recalling what went on or being accurate with my information or not wanting to get into an argument with a barrister, which is what you want to do when they f- you feel like they're testing your knowledge and experience, was the fact that there was four, four of the crew sitting right in front of me. And I think I, w- I wasn't concerned about what they may do to me or what they may do to my family. It was more about the fact that I was there in front of representatives of North Korea. So I was really, I wasn't taking on four mariners. I was taking on a country in what I was saying. And I know it wasn't all about me. There's a lot of other people that would have given evidence along the way. But um, I think that was probably the most confronting thing to deal with. I wasn't worried about the barristers and the questions they were asking.
0: Did you get an impression then with your time um, uh, piloting the Pong Su and, and being in, in control of it back to Sydney, um, that for the master, for him to have kind of navigated what he did down off um, Lawn Boggley Creek in those conditions there, with eight to ten foot um, swell, hmm. he must have been a pretty
1: skillful operator, if if anything. Yeah, well, the vessel's not. I mean, they they maintained it as well as they could. I don't know if you've ever seen photos of the state of it, but it's not in the best condition. And I so. I'll give you an example on that injector change. That wasn't—they didn't pull a new injector out and put it in the diesel engine. They had a bucket of what's best of the rest injectors, so ones that may have been changed out over time and probably had a little bit of functionality, but they definitely were. And so he was—he ma- was operating a vessel close to shore in in difficult weather conditions. In and one engine, one propeller. If that goes, you you really haven't. There's not many get out of jail free cards in that regard. So. He, there was it was a lot of risk involved in what he was doing, taking a vessel of that age and that maintained a maintenance of around its engines and its and its functioning that close to shore. Yeah. And what
0: about the two guys who got put in the dinghy in those conditions in the middle of the night to take the heroin? Um, that would that couldn't that must have been pretty frightening. I can't imagine.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think. There must have been an extreme amount of pressure on them to f- make them feel like that was okay to do. It's, it's very confusing um, in that of all the places on the coast of Australia, they decided that that spot was the best. I mean, if I think about it, you've got northern Australia, flat water, beautiful little sheltered coves, very, very isolated, no one around. You could have just They could have just hired a minivan, driven up to somewhere, parked it, ship comes in, nice safe boat transfer on that and away they go and they drive down through the centre of Australia and no one would want to be the wiser. So I, I'd i like to know why. It's all right. so maybe someone can answer that question <laughs> one day, but it's, it, it's highly unusual as to why that location would have been chosen just because of the level of risk involved. And also just where you're placing yourself in relation to Australia, I mean you've got to transit a long way to get away from Australia if you're caught, um, whereas in Northern Australia You could have done that transfer and been out at territorial waters and into PNG waters in the blink of an eye or across to Indonesia. So, yeah, it's, it's an unusual choice of location.
0: This has been a subscriber exclusive for Age and Sydney Morning Herald subscribers. Thanks for your ongoing support.